With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We want to talk to a couple of our favorite educators because there are some hot topics and I want to get some insights and some candid answers. Uh, educators Michael Lindblad of the Oregon Department of Education is here. Hi there, Michael. Hello, good morning. Good to see you. He is a former Oregon Teacher of the Year and you're now with the Department of Education. We'll find out what you're up to there. And Sean Daly of Concordia University School of Education and you're the Executive Vice President in charge of what? Business Development and Innovation. Business so. Development, Innovation. Well, hello to both of you and welcome. Thank you. Uh, Sean, I want to ask you how things are going at Concordia with the new uh, shared space with uh, Fabian School. It has been really exciting, John, um, to go into the 3D PhD building and to see the interaction between our faculty, the faculty at Fabian School and all of the kids. Um, To be able to work with some of our Master of Arts in Teaching students who get a real live experience of seeing kids in the classroom because each of the rooms um, has these big windows so that you can walk through the halls and watch how teaching is happening. So if uh, a student wasn't really sure if they liked teaching or not, like, you know, they could observe it right up front on the very first day that they're there. And that was something that we had dreamed about as professors of education for a long time because we used to have the experience of the teacher who would come in, would go through the program, would think that they like kids, and then got to student teaching and said, oops, like oops. I, I'm not really sure that I like this. Um, and that, that's not fair to that student. So now we can do it from day one, and we think it'll really have an impact on, one, how professors collaborate with teachers and uh, sort of service to science or science to service, um, but also um, just to get improved outcomes because we'll be able to experiment in a good way on um, what methods are going to actually work in the classroom. And so what can help kids in poverty, what can help kids who um, you know, really need to be advanced towards completion across the district. And, and we hope to replicate. Like uh, We've talked a lot with the superintendent about um, what would it mean to be able to do this type of program in some of the other schools in Portland Public Schools. So we're excited about that potential as well. For those who don't know about it, Concordia School of Education and Fabian K-8 right, right, are, are co-located. That is the School of Education and Fabian are in the same building. Yep. And the teachers and the students interact every day. That's right. Like, you know, in fact, uh, I think Cheryl and Jen, the uh, dean of our College of Education and the principal of the school, have offices that are right next to each other. And so uh, kids will often like wander into the dean of the School of Education's office to be able to ask for help. And uh, Cheryl, whose trainings in early childhood ed, just uh, delights in these moments because you know here's this uh, five-year-old, six-year-old who's interacting with the dean of a college and starting to get an experience of you know, who are these people in college and what does a dean mean? And what do professors do? And uh, and then the professors get to really sort of drop into these classes and be able to support teachers by giving them extra expertise um, and help when it comes to solving some of the wicked problems that exist in K-8 classrooms. Now, Michael Lindblad, uh, when we uh, last talked, what was it, a year ago, a year and a half, something, uh, you were just beginning a job uh, at the Oregon Department of Education. Uh, what do you do there? How's it going? Yes, I started working for the Department of Education uh, about a year and a half ago. And I guess the most humbling part of the job is the ability to drive around the state and look at schools and the strategies that they're using in different areas of the state. I probably never would have gone to Baker City or to 
you know, Milton Freewater or different places around the state that I that I've got a chance to visit. And it's nice to see how hard people are working in different areas of the state beyond the Willamette Valley. Because, of course, the conspiracy is by the rest of the state. We make a lot of decisions in the Willamette Valley, and we don't go often out to see where they're at. So we want to engage those communities as much as we can. And really what I do is I work on mentorship programs, teacher leadership, and school improvement, going out to support schools in different ways that they can improve as we look forward there getting the graduation rate up and getting more students to actually attend schools. And something I really like that's going on right now around the state is the movement to get more family coordinators into schools that can make personal calls and personal visits to homes. I was over in Ontario, Oregon a couple of weeks ago, almost in Idaho. Got yeah, to almost see on Boise the border. and <laughs> another West Coast city that Snake everyone River keeps moving country. to in Boise. And, yeah. Yeah. and I saw in Ontario some outstanding community engagement with Treasure Valley Community College, engaged with the Ontario School District, and they let us interview students. And we talked to students and asked them about their experiences, and they said that they come to school every day because if they don't, the school will make sure and do home visits and engage their families. And since they know that that's already in place, it's driven the attendance to go up. It's important for us in every state, but particularly this one with our lower attendance rates, to have those live calls. You're an engaging personality. That's why everyone listens to radio, yeah. John, right? You get a live voice, a live touch from the school. It's really, it really makes a difference. Better than a, a robocall. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you, you were part of a symposium uh, recently on uh, elevating culturally responsive teaching. Did I get that right? You did. There's a lot of acronyms in education, but you got that one right. What does that mean and how do you elevate it? I think it means that you have to meet students where they are. And for our young teachers that Sean and his school and Dr. Rainich and Concordia are mentoring, and they do such a nice job of that, <clears throat> they have to teach the students and the student teachers that when they go into these classrooms, even though they're thinking about curriculum and the district requirements or the state requirements, they first have to build those relationships with those students. Find out where they're from, what makes them tick, what cultures are they from, and then design curriculum, adapt it on the fly to make sure that they're doing things to reach those students. So we brought together four teachers of the year and several other teacher leaders to be on a culturally responsive teaching panel. We had another trauma-informed practice session in the next area. We had a poverty speaker. But the big thing, Concordia is like a microcosm of Portland's progress in many ways to me because if you've been to Concordia 20 years ago, it looked a lot different than now. And to be in that new library to do a conference that was focused on continuous improvement so that it wasn't just going to a conference, but there's now follow-up sessions. We're even talking here on the radio about it. And I think that's the difference. If you look at five years ago, 10 years ago, we all want to go to a conference, have a good meal, learn something, get excited, come back. We're rejuvenated. But then what really happens after we come home? Whether it's you, you know, collaborating with radio or communication people around the country or Sean going collaborating with other colleges or we're doing a, a school improvement type conference, people have to have that follow up and they have to have a way to follow up on what they're doing. And we kind of set that up through teaching partners and Concordia so that all the people that attend in the sessions can go on to the teaching partners website. They can view the live video and then there'll be follow up Zoom casts with those exact people to make sure we're following up with the teachers when they actually try this out in schools. Do you want to elaborate at all on that, Sean? Yeah. Now, uh, to your point initially, John, I think that the, the main thrust is on something called um, learner variability. 
Um, the idea that I think what a lot of parents know that they're, the children are different from student to student to student. And so sometimes teachers, I, I think most times teachers are pretty good about addressing all of those. But I think a couple of times you know, teachers get into the classroom and they see just how different their students are. It could be because of culture. It could be because of different um, exceptionalities or abilities. And so we wanted to give them more tools to be able to leverage for all the different types of students that they were there uh, or that they would see in their classroom, which I think is what they told us that they've needed lost the way. Um, you know, Michael mentioned trauma-informed care, which is one of our newer programs. Um, and uh, the goal there was just recognizing just how many students cope with poverty or cope with violence. Um, and those pieces need some direction from teachers who often are the front line in working with those students. And so uh, this conference gave them a couple of tools to work with. And as Michael was saying, um, we know from research that going to a conference by itself, uh, maybe like 5% of what you get from a conference you'll take back. And so you have to have really good follow-up to be able to really implement what you were working with at that conference. So uh, Michael has uh, colleagues at a company called Teaching Partners who are willing to put webinars on that the teachers could access for free to be able to uh, pick up with their learning and to continue to learn from the people who are presenting that particular day. And um, those opportunities, I think, for teachers are very positive in the sense that, you know, their day is already pretty full. You know, their classrooms are full. Teaching is an exhausting profession. And so getting just-in-time training that they can access through their phone, um, we think would make it easier for them to be able to keep uh, doing continuous lifelong learning, which is what we think they need to be able to address those classroom experiences. Okay, we're talking with Sean Daly from Concordia and Michael Lindblad from the Oregon Department of Education. I wanted to ask you guys about undocumented students. Um, what kind of special challenges do they face? How are upcoming teachers uh, being trained to help these students? I find that in our teacher education program, uh, we make our best attempt to work with the students regardless of situation. Um, and again, if I, I mentioned before talking about having to work with students who are in poverty, um, I don't know many teachers who would stop a student at the door and you know, really focus on that particular status because if they're in that uh, seat trying to learn that particular day, most of the teachers I know are going to take their time to be able to figure out how to educate that person. Um, and when it comes to younger kids, you know, in many cases, um, you know, that, that's a kid who still wants to learn. They're here for a wide variety of reasons, which mean that kid usually had very little influence or no influence on whatsoever. Um, and I think that most teachers still feel it's their call to be able to find some way to be able to reach that student and to help them, whatever their path may be. Um, and, and I think we generally, you know, as a college of teacher education, tend to wade into that particular practice. Um, you know, the trauma-informed care stuff uh, can speak about some of the disruption that the undocumented status may cause in terms of their family life, um, the constant fear or threat of deportation, um, the way that policies and politics sort of play into that, the differences from state to state, because a lot of our teachers don't stay here in Oregon. Um, so I, I think that we try to talk about that as a complex political issue, but at the end of the day, you know, the key thing that we always try to emphasize is the importance of the relationship with that student in the room and figuring out when they're in your room, um, try to put that stuff on the side a little bit to the second, recognize it's dealing, they're dealing with that, but figure out how to be able to still get them to where they need to be when it comes to um, the studies that will advance them throughout the course of their academic career. Now, Michael, you've dealt with that in your classroom. You know, it's, it's not only a professional issue for me, but it's a personal issue because, you know, my wife is from El Salvador and raised her daughters, and then when they, you know, came into the country, they, they were not documented as either. And, you know, now I look at them and they're, 
one girl's working for Nike and the other girl's a social worker, even though I really wanted her to be a teacher and the other girl works for international trading. And I think that historically immigrants are such a life, life blood of the country in, in our country as a whole. But I'm going to go off something Sean said. That is that when you're a teacher, your job is to support and inspire and find the way to build the self-esteem in every student that walks in your room. And I remember as my class size got from 30 to 40 to hit 52 at Gresham. I was like, you know, my job hasn't changed. I have to engage all of them. I got to find out about them and support them. So it wouldn't matter to me if someone had been here for a very long time in the country or they just showed up recently. It would be my job to help that person, like Sean was saying. And I think <clears throat> a larger thing that I've seen in schools across our state, particularly in the last year, I think that there became a fear in school among those students, their families, of where the safe places were in that community. And I know uh, different examples where people were fearing that ICE or someone would be coming to the community. So I know some schools, actually, that went proactive on this, and they went and got immigration lawyers that were supportive of schools and supportive of those populations and brought them in and had community events to explain what, where does the perception meet the reality and what are some of the supports that we can provide here from the school. And it's interesting that you mentioned earlier, we were talking about Portland Public Schools, but I know that Scott and Riggler were very engaged in that process about a year ago just because they wanted to support their students not having just to come every day with fear to the school because going to school is complicated enough. So I think it's a great question. I think it's something that people are talking about nationally and around the state. And as you well know, our governor has come out several times and said, we're going to be a supportive state to everyone that comes here, including all the different immigrant students. And I think that that's important stance for Oregon. I mean, of course, we want to abide by the law, but at the same time, our job is to inspire and build the self-esteem in every student that walks in the room, regardless of where they're from. Well, a classroom is a classroom, and a child is a child, and a classroom absolutely must be a safe place. Which brings up another topic here. We have to talk about the issue of gun violence in the schools. Um, the proposal is on, following the Florida shootings, uh, to allow teachers to carry weapons uh, if they are trained and qualified to do so. Where do you stand on that? I, I completely disagree with that proposal. And I'm going to be speaking as an individual and, and as an American citizen here. And I'm not against uh, people owning guns. Um, there was a wonderful editorial that Anthony Swelford wrote in the New York Times talking about, you know, he was a Marine. And as a Marine, he had to go through a training that just defied what anyone would have to do to be able to use a weapon. Um, and here he is as a college professor now doing classes and saying, you know, I, I did that as a Marine, but I, I don't want to be thinking about how to barricade my classroom and how to, you know, cite the halls. Like, that's not my job. My, my brain is supposed to be focused on relationship building and teaching and not being the armed force that's supposed to protect schools. Um, I think that that's a stopgap proposal that would attempt to put the wrong uh, person in place to be able to try to defend student safety. Um, and I think it creates a lot of possible risks. Like, you know, I mean, and I know there's a handful of teachers who probably believe that because they have some training that they would be the optimal person to help in those situations. But I think that across the expanse of the country, that that's not going to solve this particular issue. 
Um, and I don't think it makes schools a lot safer. Um, I think that there are better practices when it comes to mental health, like, you know, and funding the mental health apparatus better than we funded it before of really talking about school safety with students a lot more um, openly. Like, you know, and I think that, um, you know, having a, a collective thought about, you know, what's been going on now since, uh, you know, Kip Kinkle in this state or uh, Columbine uh, when I was first becoming a teacher. But I mean, we talked about this uh, when I was a high school teacher out in Gresham. Um, and I could say it was the outlier who would ever think that any of us should be armed uh, in the course of our day. So, so personally, John, I think that, you know, um, I, I understand where it comes from. It comes from a place of fear. But I mean, um, there's plenty of research that would indicate that this is just the wrong move for uh, classrooms right now. I try and not watch a lot of the news, John. That's why I like the Daily Drip every morning. I wake up and watch it. There's some humor. I can take most of it in. But the unfortunate thing is I've got all these educated people around me, regardless if I don't watch the news, they, they bring these things to me. And I would be um, lying to you if I told you I wasn't emotionally affected every time there's a school shooting. I think for those of us that have been in schools or had kids in schools like yourself and Sean and I both have our own children, we want our schools to be safe. I know the state and our superintendent, Colt Gill, is working on putting together safety committees to look at these issues. I will say two things. Number one, because of where we're at as a society and as a country, we have to protect our kids more now in schools. I read several editorials on this, and I saw that one, one person pointed out who went to the White House, among the parents and went to talk to the president, that we spend so much money at airports but we hardly spend any money protecting our own kids at the school. And so I, this is my personal opinion, not from my job or the department or anything. This is just Michael Lindblad's personal opinion, like most of this interview today. Mm -hmm. I feel like I want armed guards that are specifically trained for two or three years to be in every school in the country, two or three of them, depending on their size. We can't completely eliminate these threats, right? But we can diminish the odds by putting security in the school. However, on what Sean said, I would not arm teachers simply because teachers have a myriad of things to worry about every single day. How are they going to relate to 27 different personalities, teach them to read, balance the emotions in the class, be there to do individual work. When you've been in a classroom, it's really hard to be looking at all spots of the classroom all the time real seasoned teachers as they move always keep their their eyes across the classroom i would really think it would burden emotionally and physically many teachers to actually have to think about training and then using it and when to go to it at what point in time i also fear that with teachers having so many arms in schools that someone might get a hold of the arm that shouldn't have that I, you know, we have the Second Amendment. It's an important part of the country. But schools need to be protected by professional security, police, or former military people and not teachers that are arming themselves. And the part that really worries me is that the president comes out and says, we'll give you a bonus if you get trained. We should be giving teachers bonuses for other work that they're doing around teacher leadership like the conference we had at Concordia. And so I'm glad you asked this question because it's something that we're all thinking about. It's emotional, I think, for a lot of people. 
but that's how I feel about that. Well, thank you, Michael, and thank you, Sean. Some important insights on an important topic from a couple of Oregon's top educators, Michael Lindblad of the Oregon Department of Education and Sean Daly of the Concordia University School of Education. And thank you for tuning in. I'm John Erickson. This has been a public affairs production of iHeartRadio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.